everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Feel the great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. I've got to ask you a question. I'll probably get a no for, but I'm just playing a hunch. Uh, do you ever hit home runs? Sometimes. Uh, do you play for a New York team? Yes. Are you either Mickey Mantle or Roger Maris? No. Are you in love with a movie star? <laughs> no. Have you played several positions this year, notably catcher in left field? Are you Yogi Berra? <laughs> ah, there we go. Uh, we're here on Everything Old is New Again, an old clip there from the 1960s. What's my line? Has some relation to what we're going to be doing to today. David Cohen, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. We're here really with... excited uh, about today's topic and today's guest. Yes, we are going to have some fun here. Listen, the bottom line is there's no baseball as of yet. We're still waiting to see if baseball is going to come back this year. So getting beyond all of that, let's kind of revel in baseball of the past. Our guest is John Pessa. He is a New York Times bestselling author of a prior book called The Game, which is an examination of the power brokers who built Major League Baseball into the multi-billion dollar business it is now. And he's also a founding member of ESPN, the magazine, and he's managed the sports departments of the local paper here at Newsday and the Hartford Current. Yogi Berra is the subject of today because he's written a book called Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Uh, first of all, I want to say, John, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Douglas, thanks. I'm great to be here. It's going to be a great show. We love uh, talking baseball. And, and today, when I look at and hear about Yogi Berra and uh, see the kids flipping their cards if they do that and, and having fun on the, the ball field and all, for today's generation, I think we could say, I, I'm going to argue, that he's probably the most underrated Yankee of all time. He may at one point have been the most popular Yankee since Babe Ruth, and we'll talk about that as well. That's sort of uh, an odd juxtaposition, but I want to explore that with John. And when we, before we start that, I want to just give, lay a little groundwork, is that Yogi Berra had 358 home runs, 280, uh, two, a lifetime batting average of 285. He won three MVPs. He's the only baseball player player in the world to have won the world championship uh, in the world series 10 times more than anyone in history is that a coincidence that the yankees won 10 times with yogi on the team not at all um he averaged uh from 1949 to 1953 the yankees won five straight world series in that time he batted anywhere from 280 to 322 hit anywhere 22 to 30 home runs, 100 RBIs, and he was the best player on that team. It was the tail end of DiMaggio's uh, career. He only hit three years in his la last year, he hit 263. One year he was he was out for half the year. It was the beginning of Mickey Mantle's career, 
when he couldn't stop striking out. Yogi Berra, as you said, was a, a multi-MVP, and he was a uh, not only a dominant hitter, but he was a, ter- a terrific catcher. Defensively, he had a great arm, super quick around the plate, th- threw people out when they tried to bunt at third at third base on the sacrifice. I mean, this guy was probably um, the best player in the American League for the first uh, first half of the 1950s. Is that you, David? Yeah, Doug. I, I just I'm trying to ding in here because I want to say something. <laughs> no, having some technical difficulties. When you say, when you ask the I've heard a lot of questions about Yogi Berra, but I've never heard anyone ask if he was the most underrated Yankee of all time. He's usually on the top five, maybe six greatest Yankees of all time on anyone's list. So I, I'm not even sure. What no, you because that. if you talk to somebody that's 30 and 35 and under, they're not going to tell you that Yogi Berra is, is a huge baseball player. I'm telling you right now. I'll tell you what, it's more like 50 and under. And yeah. people, I mean, his persona was a big part of of overshadowing what a great player he was so but but top 10 you got I mean, yeah, well i'm not yeah, saying he's i'm not saying 10. he's not i'm saying the perception so is not the there the perception I, is not there i gotta tell you that i'm i mean like many baby boomers i you know in new york i grew up dreaming to follow mickey mantle in center field for me the the, the mount rushmore was always you know babe ruth lou gary joe dimaggio mickey mantle un, unquestioned after doing all the research for this book and after seeing how um, unbelievably talented and unbelievably important uh, Yogi was, if, if he doesn't replace Mickey, which is hard for me to say on, on Mount Rushmore, you got to put five up there. And the point I was about to make where I cut myself off was he caught, uh, averaged 141 games a season. This guy caught um, 20 to 22 double headers a year, back to back double headers in August and September playing catcher. And when Casey Stengel was asked, why does he play um, Yogi Berra so much, especially since there were so many good backup catchers, he said, when I play Mr. Berra at catcher, we win World Series. It was that simple. And, um, uh, David, I certainly appreciate it. I don't mean to cut you off and, and put you down. <laughs> I mean, I came out too strong there. But my, my, my point was, and I, and I, I, I want to, the reason why I was that way, because I want to agree with you, he is in the list of the top 10. He should be, but he should be higher up. And I'm just saying for today's perception of today's, you know, you always see these lists and they never go back beyond what the maker of the list remembers from their own perception. Uh, they'll throw in Babe Ruth or they'll throw in Lou Gehrig just for posterity but just because they didn't see the player play you get this perception that they weren't there and with yogi we have the additional aspect of the persona after he retired and most people think about the yogi isms which we'll talk about down the line and and his personality and as an old timer but uh, anyway i just wanted to make and that point like doc and miller light and all the commercials and and when you look at yogi i mean yogi in his prime was five seven and a half 180 pounds you know uh when we see yogi especially when he comes back to the yankees in 1999 i mean yogi is this little this little old man right and you you look at him and say how could this guy have been a dominant baseball player but he was everybody i talked to the players who played with him and then for him 
just saying you could not believe how good this guy was on the playing field. And to do this as a catcher, too, let me just point out one example that you've talked about in the book. In, in 1956, the World Series, the deciding game of that World Series against the Dodgers, Don Newcomb, a great pitcher, was pitching for the Dodgers in Ebbets Field, uh, and they would Newcomb was trying to throw the ball out of the strike zone and did so. Meanwhile, Berra hit two home runs that way, uh, just much like uh, his hero Joe Medwick, you know, was a bad ball hitter. And I, I think you said that Sporting News indicated and voted him baseball's toughest out. So yes. maybe you could expand upon that a little bit. Took this out year after year, and the reason being that there was no place you could pitch to Yogi. If you threw the ball a foot over his head, but he thought he was going to be able to hit it that day, he hit it. And, you know, you throw, like you were saying, with Newcomb tried to, to waste a pitch a half a foot outside, and Yogi yanks it over the, over the wall in, uh, in Ebbets Field for, for a home run. And, you know, Newcomb won 27 games that year. He was a pretty fair pitcher, and he hit two like that off of him in the in the seventh game of the world series to win the world series um he was just there, there was no book on yogi because he would you know he there was there was a you know a a uh, an anecdote in the book where when he was playing semi-pro ball in uh in the, in the end of his tenure with the navy after he comes back from europe and uh, they call for a pitch out and yogi steps across the plate and hits a double and the catcher says to turns to the umpire and said, he can't do that. I called for a pitch out. He can't do that. He goes, well, you didn't tell Yogi. And the double stood. <laughs> now, David Cohen, you're huge on Yogi, which I appreciate. Do you have some, uh, you know, perspective as to what we're saying here and or a question for John uh, from the last minute and a half here? Oh, yeah, I have a bunch of questions. Go I'm right ahead. I'm not sure where they fit into the, you know, <laughs> one of the things I always wanted to know about Yogi was when he was fired the first time as uh, as the Yankee manager what how did he feel about that because I know that it, it must have been really difficult for him he he was absolutely devastated by that and, and didn't see it coming he knew he was in a tough situation that you know the, the the thinking the Yankees had won three titles I mean three um pennants and two titles in the preceding three years before he took over so it was going to be if they win anybody could manage the Yankees if they lose it was Yogi's fault but he took a team that lost its best pitcher in Whitey Ford. Uh, people were injured all season long and aging, and we know from what happened in the next two years when they finished sixth and then tenth that this was a team that was on on its way to collapsing. And he brings them within uh, two runs of beating the uh, very good Cardinals team in the seventh game of the World Series. He thought he was going in to get a two-year contract when he walked into um, to, to the owner's office two days after the World Series, and instead they tell him he's fired. And we're going to take up uh, that story in two seconds, and, right after and, this. And this, was, and this was pre-Steinbrenner, right? right? This 64. wasn't even the Steinbrenner era. Well, the thing is that they had decided, I mean, Ralph Hack was a backup catcher to Yogi and then was cut and sent to the minor leagues. There were a lot of rumors that, that Hauk was always jealous about Yogi's uh, talent and also his popularity because Yogi was easily the most popular Yankee during this time. And we're going to have to stop right there, John, for a second. We'll be back right after this. And everything old do again. I'm talking baseball. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. The great Yogi Berra. Now, the reason they're assembled around this gentleman in the center is his name is Jack Norworth. Two of the songs he wrote, one of them was Shine on Harvest Moon. The other one has become a classic in their profession, Take Me Out 
to the ball game. We're back here uh, talking baseball and having a great time with David Cohen, of course, uh, our own yogi uh, himself. Uh, David, how are you doing? Good. I'm trying to think of a yogiism to come back with. <laughs> we'll get to those next section. That was a clip from the 60s, the Ed Sullivan Show. The Yankees were on there. Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, Mickey Mantle, Muscaron singing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Why are we doing that? Because we are here with John Pessa talking about Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, a tremendous book that you've got to get your hands on, especially in this time when there's no baseball. John, we cut you off last section, just finishing up talking about how Yogi in 64 was fired for the first time, how he felt about that. He was in the office expecting a two-year uh, renewal of his contract and was terminated. The plan was, I mean, Yogi went right from uh, from being a player to being a manager, which meant that he was going to manage his, his teammates and his friends, Mickey Mantle and, and Whitey Ford. The, the plan was that, okay, we know that he doesn't have any managing experience, and Ralph, who won three pennants in three years as, as manager of the Yankees, was supposed to be his mentor. Instead of being his mentor, there was a steady stream of players going behind Yogi's back to Ralph Howe complaining. Howe didn't send them back to Yogi, and Howe is a major in the Army, so he understands chain of command. Instead, he lets that, that fester. By uh, August, he has convinced the owners that Yogi needs to be fired. So Yogi, even, even though he goes to the World Series, by, by early August, they were already looking for a new manager. Um, so they had already pretty much been set, and Yogi was going to get fired uh, it would have been interesting if he won the World Series, whether they actually would have carried that through. But the decision was made in early August that he was gone. Unbelievable. Now, we heard a clip earlier starting the show with What's My Line? Then we heard a clip just now of Ed Sullivan's show. So uh, he was making his way through television and through popular culture pretty significantly in the 50s and 60s and 70s. He appeared on some shows, too. So don't have a story in the book about What's My Line, but I think you may have a story for us now, a little ex Everything Old is New Again exclusive here about Ryogi on What's My Line. Well, I mean, I mentioned that he was on What's My Line, but I couldn't get this story in. It's a terrific story. The, the clip you played he was on actually twice and the clip you played they guessed his name so fast that they had a fill and and dorothy kilgallen one of the guests uh one of the panelists says isn't mrs Barrow behind the you know in in the green room and they said yes and they bring her out and carmen Barrow is a beautiful woman and they bring her out they introduce her and she's kind of shy and she goes back behind the curtain afterwards so the the um uh, switchboard at CBS lights up. They get overwhelmed. And why? People were calling in and complaining because how dare Yogi bring his girlfriend to the show instead of uh, make a fool out of his wife because they didn't believe that somebody as beautiful as Carmen Berra would marry Yogi. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, unbelievable. And Yogi uh, had to deal with that his whole life, as even in like, uh, you know, 1947, I think it was, when he was a rookie, he was hearing himself being described as an ape. And what he, I believe, responded was... Never seen anyone hit with their face. There we go. So that was a great clip, great quote. How did he deal with being dealt with like that for his looks all the time? 
I'll tell you what. One of the things that really surprised me was how much verbal abuse Yogi got for for two reasons. One was his Italian heritage, which um, I knew there was discrimination of every immigrant group, but I didn't know how bad it was for Italians in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, really into the 60s. And also for his, for his looks. I mean, people called him the ape. They called him Quasimodo. They called him Nature Boy. In fact, the title of a of a column by a Pulitzer Prize winning. Um, New York Times columnist Arthur Daly, he was nature boy. Just, you know, even people that he considered friends or, or people that liked him, this was just a constant. And going back to his very first season in the, in the minors, um, he was getting all sorts of abuse. And of course, in the minors, the, the, the stands are really close. So he heard everything. And he would come back to the to after making it out. He'd come back and he'd slam the bat down. He'd be turning beet red. And his manager pulls him aside and said, "Look, you're going to get a lot of abuse. A, you're really good. B, you're Italian, and you're going to get a lot of abuse. And if you let people see that it bothers you, it's only going to get worse." So Yogi, from that day on, um, just made believe that it rolled off his back. But inside. You know, his, he wrote a, an autobiography um, in 1960. So he's 35 years old by now. And he, the very first paragraph talks about uh, this this character that he doesn't recognize, a, a cross between Joe Palooka and Little Abner, who's supposed to be so dumb that he doesn't understand pressure, which is why he hits home runs, goes on to talk about how ugly he is. He goes, I don't recognize that yogi. So this is when he's 35 years old, so yeah, he heard it all. He internalized it. He didn't let it show that it bothered him, but it absolutely bothered him his whole life. But he had some incredible intestinal fortitude, and I think it may have come from, I'm totally guessing, that it was in World War II. He won a Purple Heart. He was there on D-Day. Uh, he was in a, a small boat, 36-footer, uh, you know, supporting the troops uh, from the sea, and was there on the boat for 10 days and saw all of what happened there on D-Day. No one really talks about it, and I don't think he really he spoke about it in glowing terms. Like he kind of said in some ways that it was exciting time of his life, but it had to have been frightening. And I don't know that uh, you know that that doesn't change you. Did that come across at all? Oh, th there's no question. I mean, he's 19 years old. He volunteers for a secret mission. The secret mission is to be in something called a rocket boat. It was 36 feet long, wooden hull, a slab of metal on the top, rocket launches in the back, and three machine guns. And they are literally the first wave of the invasion at Normandy. And his job is to uh, feed rockets, lobbing them up into the, into, the, uh, into the bluffs to get the machine gun nest. What he saw was unspeakable. And then and then after the battle, his job was to fish the dead uh, and the wounded out of the water, which just boggles my mind what that must have been like. To tell you how it affected him, there, there's a Yogi Berra Museum in Montclair, New Jersey, which is a beautiful little museum. And if anyone's ever in the area when we're back open again, they should stop in because it's, it's a great little history. And before it opened, a veterans group came to uh, came to talk to him and present him with a plaque. And they walk into the lobby from one direction, and Yogi comes in the other direction, and they meet. No words are spoken. Every one of them breaks down crying. And it's just the, 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 all the memories that these men buried of what they went through and what they saw just came out in that moment, and they, couldn't, they were just so choked up that they couldn't even talk about it. 
And so, yeah, I think that that had a profound effect on, on the way he looked at the world. He was just happy to be alive. I mean, one of my best sources for this book was Carmen Vera's sister, Bonnie Morse, who still lives in, in, in St. Louis. And when I was asking her questions about, you know, what life was like in the in the late 40s, after, um, you know, for Yogi and Carmen, and she goes, John, you got to remember that we had gone through a, a depression and we had gone through a war. If you were alive and you had a and you had a job, life was great. And and you know, I think that's really hard for us today to really kind of connect with. Exactly, and uh, you know, that attitude was something that. Um is what everybody remembers uh, and i'm curious though how it affected his relationship with uh, with joe dimaggio for example joe dimaggio when they began when 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 yogi was a rookie was in the outfield and i think it was the first game they played or one of the first games dimaggio's rule basically was if you call it you get it if you don't call it i got it and a fly ball goes out to right center uh yogi says nothing goes for it breaks the rule uh, DiMaggio catches the ball but Yogi you know, falls into him and they, they have a collision and later on unlike what happened with Mantle which is basically the same thing and unlike what happened uh, with many players uh, DiMaggio covered for Yogi with the with the press and basically it you know was saying well you know he knows that I had a difficult time with my ankle he knows that I'm coming off of an injury he was just going for it and he backed off a little bit at the end so he really covered for Yogi why and we only have a minute so maybe we can carry this over to the next section too but why do you think DiMaggio had that attitude right from the beginning with this rookie you know um, Yogi is just a really likable person and Joe didn't make many friends. Joe was kind of aloof and kind of um, uh, arrogant, and he was standoffish. And Yogi lockered next to him, and the two of them uh, hit it off. I'm sure their Italian heritage played a uh, part of that as well. Um, but he just took a took a liking to Yogi that lasted um, through both of their lives, and. Um, you know, it was it was really something to, to see because, I mean, in that particular game, not only was it that he knocked over DiMaggio, but DiMaggio was coming back from from an injury. Joe DiMaggio, by that time in his career, had been hurt so many times. He had missed eight opening days because he was always getting hurt. And so when Yogi Berra knocks him over, everybody held their breath that Joe DiMaggio was going to get up. And Berra was scared to death that, that he was going to be banned, that he, you know, he wouldn't get, be allowed to play. And DiMaggio covers for him is it was unheard of right. and that just kind of tells you how the players other players related to yoke right from the start and we'll be back right after this and everything old is new again with david cohen with douglas viviani and more importantly with john passa yogi a life behind the mask yogi a life behind the mask go to j-o-n-p-e-s-s-a-h.com j-o-n-p-e-s-s-a-h.com and pick up this book it's tremendous Here with uh, John Billingsley, and we're talking about the Hollywood Food Coalition. John, what is this? Well, I'm the president of the board. We serve a hot, nutritious five-course meal to hungry men, women, and children seven nights a week, 365 days a year. Been doing it for 33 years. We distribute clothing and shoes and blankets and backpacks and you name it. And we help people access a huge array of other services from partner groups. 
And if you'd be interested in making a donation, hofoco.org, three bucks, buys a hungry person a great five-course meal. H-O-F-O-C-O dot org. Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show, Everything Old is New Again, with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. I want to tell one yogi story before we miss it. Talked about Old Timers Day, and every year they would run a roll, all of the people that had passed during the baseball year. We're watching the thing go, and he goes like this to me, hey, hey. And I said, yeah, Yogi, what do you want? He said, boy, I hope I don't ever see, see my name up there. <laughs> We're back on Everything Old is New Again. That's Reggie Jackson relating his story about Yogi at Old Timers Day. Yogi didn't want to see his name on the scroll of the screen when they announced every year who had passed away. Just fun uh, stories about Yogi. And uh, I'll tell you, we're having a great time here to begin with talking about a book that we can only scratch the surface of. this. tremendous stories in here. Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. And uh, I'm telling you, it is a book you've got to look up uh you go to j-o-n-p-e-s-s-a-h uh dot com of course amazon has it as well uh david cohen are you familiar with these yogi isms that exist out there you have to be you have any oh yeah of of course Uh, it ain't over till it's over remember that one of course you got any there on your side he's talking about a restaurant no one goes there anymore it's too crowded (laughs) or if you come to a fork in the road take it yeah i mean there's there's so many of them (laughs) it gets late early out there uh it's talking about yeah that was about yankee stadium and at playoff time in the fall (laughs) when the the shadow would start coming over yankee stadium especially in the outfield so he was referring to it being late early out there means it got it got dark before it should have (laughs) and it's like very difficult to pick up the baseball left field for the yankee Stadium was a tough tough place to play exactly and it's like deja vu all over again because we're here talking uh, all things yogi and i wanted to ask i know these yogis may have started out as fun and maybe a mistake did they become uh, more planned by him or did they just uh, through his whole life just come out as a sort of mistake in, in discussing things? I think that uh, at the very end, um, since they became a cottage industry, um, and there, you know, seven, uh, four books coming out built around yogiisms that maybe he tried to come up with, uh, with a couple. But most of these were organic, and most of them made sense. I mean, the one about, you know, uh, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. Is, is and there's a in Montclair there's a rock with that inscribed on it at the point where you hit that street and what it is it's a circular street so it comes around either way you go you're going to end up going on the right in the right direction when you get to the uh, to the next street uh, the one of the ones I, I like so much is uh, he says you know I really didn't say everything I said <laughs> which was true yeah. um, some of those were uh, you know from the press who would who would hear something and say you know that's something that Yogi would say. And they would attribute to him. Some of them came from his best friend, Joe DiMaggio, who he knew from the time they grew up together across the street from each other when Yogi was five and and Joe was four. Joe Joe Garagiola. Yes, Joe Garagiola. Joe was considered by Brant Rickey, who who signed Joe, to be the better prospect. And in fact, Brant Rickey tells uh, Yogi to his face that you're only going to be a triple-A player after after a tryout. You're only going to be a triple-A player, and we want people that can go all the way. So he signs uh, Joe Garagiola instead. 
um, to a $500 bonus contract. Garagiola becomes a, a, a middling player, uh, gets, a, gets injured, retires at 28, and goes into broadcasting. Starts out as a color announcer, ends up as the host of the Today Show and the backup to Johnny Carson on the Tonight Show. And all the way through, uh, the, one of the main planks of his act is stories about Yogi Berra. And in fact, Yogi was once asked, you know, how do you feel? Because, you know, a lot of these were, were pretty funny. Some of them, you know, made Yogi seem kind of kind of dumb. And he said, how do you feel about uh, your best friend um, saying all these things? And he goes, anything I can do to help Joe, I'm fine with that. So, you know, some of them weren't Yogi, but he's quoted eight times in Bartlett's book of famous quotations. How about that? More than any United States president. Think about that. <laughs> David Cohen. One of my favorites, and I don't know if he even said this anymore because I, I, I don't know, but he said something about baseball being like 90% mental and the other half is physical, something like right. that. Yes, he did. You know, there's in his second autobiography, he actually went through a whole list of ones and said, here are the ones I said, here are the ones I didn't say. Um, that one he said. And, you know, mm-hmm. th- you know, most of the ones that Yogi said, like, after the, the, they lose to the Pirates in 1960, a, a series in which they outscored them in total by about 60 runs, and they lose you know, on a walk-off home run in the ninth inning. Um, and he said, you know, we made too many wrong mistakes. Too many wrong mistakes. And, you know, obviously what he meant was, that, you know, when we made mistakes, they capitalized on them. Right. Um, but, you know, that's the way, you know, some people are just naturally funny. And Yogi was had that naturally funny gene. John, I have another question. Being that today, actually, the day we're recording this is the commemoration of D-Day, um, get, going back to, to Yogi's time, what was what was the trans, uh, transition, I guess, like for him from the war back to playing baseball again? I'm sure it was similar for a lot of players who served time in the war and then came back. But can you talk a little bit about uh, what you know, if anything, about that transition for him? Sure. He 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 spent eighteen, excuse me, thirteen months in combat. D Day was the beginning of his of his tour, and he ended up um, uh, getting a Purple Heart. He got hit in the hand. Thankfully for for him and for us as baseball fans, it didn't affect his uh, his baseball career. Um, but you know, he saw things. He was a machine gunner. There's a story that 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 I found where you know they blew up a. Um, a chateau that was an intelligence center for the for the Nazis, and his job was when people ran out, him and two other people manning the machine guns, when they ran out of the of the burning building to gun them down. I mean, th- these these are memories that you just don't want to have. And um, he talked about how when they went over and then came back on the boat, that um, you know German uh, U-boats were sinking those those kind of boats and just laying there wondering what it would be like if a torpedo came through and and exploded and flooded the um, the, the boat that he was in. And he, when he came back, they he said they interviewed him several times, and the question that just kept coming up was, "Were you scared?" Were you afraid? Were you afraid? And he kept saying, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. And then he you know, wrote in a, in a book. He said, of course I was afraid. You just, you know, you just try to put all those things out of your mind. And I think that, you know, that was the challenge for all of those, all of the men who came back to just bury everything that they had seen. And, uh, you know, he went from there to a sub base in New London. 
they asked him, you know, what do you want to do next? Um, the war was still going. He was no longer in combat. And he asked to, to be in the sports and recreation department. And when he got his orders to report to a sub base, he went, me in a submarine? Are you kidding? And he got over there and discovered that, sure enough, they had basically granted his, his request. And he was, you know, um, played sports and helped uh, with the gear and, and, and helped clean up. And um, I think that those months afterwards, and, and he ended up playing baseball in that time, was vital for him to kind of like get his sanity back. Talk about sanity and insanity in that locker room. There were differences in the locker room that he was in with DiMaggio versus the locker room he was in with Mantle. And uh, for what I understand, let's talk about Mantle just for a moment. Uh, Mantle... Um, was someone that he had a good relationship with and was more or less a, a, a mentor to. And he even had an intervention or two with Mantle to try to get him to focus on baseball as opposed to the bottle. And uh, I'm wondering how he felt about f- kind of failing in that intervention with a player uh, that he respected, that he enjoyed being with, but saw some issues going on. You know, when Mickey comes up in 51, he's 19 years old. And uh, he comes from Commerce, Oklahoma, population 3,000. And he comes to New York City. And he's just overwhelmed uh, by the press, by you know, businessmen coming at him, by the fans who were told that this was going to be the next Joe DiMaggio. And every time he struck out, he got booed. Um, and he got booed all the time. Uh, which, and so Yogi kind of took him under his wing. You know, Yogi's now a veteran of, of five seasons of, of multiple um, World Series championships, and he takes him under his wing, he, and he really likes the kid. Everyone was in awe of Mantle's talent. Um, and everyone was sorry to see, you know, him, him shatter his knee in, in the 51 uh, World Series. Um, and, and Yogi tells the story about watching them cart make Mickey off the, uh, off the, off the field and, and he sees the bone that it's literally uh, broken and, and through the skin on his knee. And, you know, they became good friends. And, and sure enough, uh, you know, they, they tried re- really hard to, to convince him to stop drinking. That was Mantle's way of coping with all the pressure. And there, there was in the early 60s, in, in 1961, an intervention. Uh, a bunch of Yankees came to Yogi's house in Montclair. Um, they tried to convince uh, Mickey to stay there, kind of dry out, stop drinking so much. Mickey said yes. He lasted there one day, and then he went back. And, you know, Yogi didn't fail at too many things, um, but that was one that he was really sorry that he wasn't able to, to, uh, to, to get him off the bottom. Yeah, that was really something that affected Mantle's career and the longevity of it and uh, the overall statistics and contribution uh, that he could have done, even though he was a tremendous player, could have had a smidge more uh, going on there. We'll be back right after this on Everything Old is New Again with uh, author John Pessa of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Get involved with this book, J-O-N-P-E-S-S-A-H.com or Amazon, uh, anywhere else just selling books. Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. In pinstripe tradition. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. I had a lot of fun, you know. Uh, I could tell you one, Mickey called the game in Boston. He wanted to call the game. I said, you want to call the game? Whitey was pitching. And Whitey said, okay, let him call the game to see what happens. We had a sign. When Mickey bent down, it was a fastball. If he stood straight up, it was a curveball. If he shake his glove, it was a changeup. 
We went for seven innings like that. We were winning two to nothing. <laughs> we're here on Everything Old is New again with David Cohen. We're also talking Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask with John Pessa. Having a great time uh, sharing some stories about a real American classic, Yogi Berra, a gentleman that we all, I think, know even to this day, but maybe not to me, appreciate uh, what he was in life. And uh, I think some of that comes from the fact that his persona, if I had to describe him in one word, would be fun. And sometimes when people are fun or jovial or have a smile all the time, I'm just guessing, but sometimes they're not always taken as seriously as, as, as they should be in some ways and um i i wanted to talk about that a little bit because am i right like he his love of the game of baseball never ended and he always described it as well i was just having fun out there just as an example of that story with mickey mantle there yeah to finish that story so which plays right into your question you know mickey's going so you know why all these mvps well you know what makes you so important and you know he was joking but every joke has an element of truth to it so he said, you, know, you, want, you want to do it? Go ahead. You call the game. So he calls the game, and it's this, as Yogi left off, in the seventh inning, it's two to nothing. And Mantle is out there, um, and he come, they come back into the, lock, into the dugout, and he says, okay, I'm done. I don't want to blow this game. And he realizes how hard it is to call a game. It's two nothing. He makes one mistake, and they could lose the game. And he said, after that, he's so much more appreciated what it was like to be a catcher. I mean, the catcher is the toughest position on the field. And it's ironic that Yogi had the, you know, the, the image of not being, you know, a, or being dumb. You can't be dumb and, and, and be an excellent catcher. Once he almost pl- ended up playing right field. Because the first two years that he played catcher, he wasn't a very good catcher. And a lot of mechanical problems. Casey Stengel comes in and brings Bill Dickey in. Dickey, as Yogi said, learned me his experience. And for two hours every every day after practice and spring training, Dickey works on him. And he, and he fixes all the mechanical problems. And not only does he become a great defensive catcher, but uh, with all those problems disappeared, Yogi had an encyclopedic mind about every game that he played in. So if, if their situation came up, it was like, that's right, this is how we got Al K-Line out four years ago with man on second in the seventh inning and Ralph Terry pitching. So this is the pitch we call. And the pitchers just absolutely relied on him. And the one, the greatest example of that is I sat with um, Don Larson um, before an old-timers game. And we talked for a couple of hours. And he talked about that perfect game, obviously. And he said, you know, I threw 96 pitches. Yogi called every single pitch. I didn't brush him off once. Wherever Yogi put his mitt, I hit. And I was in the zone. Yogi was in the zone. He had, his, he had a huge part uh, to do with that perfect game. It doesn't get much better than that. Right. If there was to be, uh, you know, the old joke, you know, you look up catcher in the dictionary, I would suggest you would see Yogi uh, there. And and I know Johnny Bench has got very similar statistics and is highly regarded, or uh, at least was, of course, uh, in his day. Um, I, I would analogize them together, but and Bench won championships and all of that. But uh, I don't know how do we how do we place Yogi in the uh, mantle of all catchers of all time i mean it's not easy to do but he's got to be top three am i wrong you know uh easily in the top three and here, here's the way i look at it you look at these statistics you know and they show you a great player 
you know, one of the things we left out is Yogi averaged 24 strikeouts a season. A season. That, I mean, that's a good week for Aaron Judge. And and he is uh, he's an excellent catcher. He's an excellent hitter. You can't strike him out. Um, what what now separates him? The guy wins not uh, ten World Series. Nobody else is even is no other catcher is even close. And to me, you know, the object, everyone who plays baseball, their object is to win the last game of the season, meaning they win the World Series. And Yogi won, you know, Derek Jeter, you know, had a great relationship with Yogi. You know, hey, you know, I, I, I've got five rings and Yogi holds up, you know, two hands and goes, I got one on every finger. Right. And Yogi didn't brag uh, at all, but the guy won 10 World Series. And to me, yeah, well, that separates him. Yeah, I mean, the, the difference is that it was much easier to win World Series back when Yogi was playing. There were no playoffs. There were no, you know, three rounds that you had to go through to, to eventually win. But I think it's correct to say that while he was playing, I think he was clearly the best catcher of his time, to say yeah. the least. Yeah, I mean, it was him. I mean, Campanella and, and him overlapped, and, and Campanella was a great player. You know, you, you have to look at, I mean, the, the statistics. Um, Ebbets Field was a bandbox. I mean, you know, yes, Yogi had the short right field porch, um, but it was uh, everyone uh, loved hitting in, in Ebbets Field. But they were, they were you know, uh, very good friends and, um, and great catchers, both of them. But, yes, I think Yogi, for in his time, absolutely dominated that position. There were so many players that go on from like Sherm Lala, Gus Trianos, um, end up, you know, with all-star careers who who couldn't get past Yogi um, uh, at, at when he was catching with the Yankees. So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and uh, the glue to so many of those teams. Now, along those lines, I, I have to ask, because it's so interesting that he played with two of the best center fielders of all time, maybe some of the best players of all time, in Mantle and DiMaggio. He had relationships with both. The book goes into a lot of different stories of behind the scenes of both. But I have to ask a different question in that, who would he have preferred to play center field in the game that he had to win? And the second question is, who was the better teammate between the two? Yogi always said the best player he ever saw was Joe DiMaggio. And and I think there was an awful lot of players uh, of that time who looked at DiMaggio as the player that did everything right. And he made it look easy on top of it. So I think if you if you were going to ask Yogi, who do you want in center field um, for a game you got to win? He's going to say DiMaggio and let's put Mickey in right. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is there's I, I don't think it's any uh, shock to people that Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio did not get along. Uh, DiMaggio was especially towards the end of, uh, end of his career was just tired of hearing about Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle. And uh, and Mantle was just an astonishing physical um, uh Specimen. I mean, he was just, he was the fastest player anyone had ever seen, hit the ball 500 feet from both sides of the play. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, but so the two men did not like each other. And something that tells you a lot about who Yogi was, was he was friends with both of them. And uh, not many people were. Uh, he, you know, he was able to bridge the gap. And that's the kind of teammate that Yogi was, and I think he, you know, he loved being around Mickey, and he loved being around Joe. 
And, you know, I don't think I don't I don't if he would have been forced to choose, he would have said, I like both equally. Because that's well, the kind of guy Yogi was. Well, which clubhouse, you know, the cl- put it this way, you always, you know, hear about the clubhouse and Jeter and whoever is it's the leader of a particular team and it takes the the uh, personality of that person. Uh, DiMaggio was very serious and somber and very, very rarely celebrated till the last game of the season, let's say. And uh, DiMa- and Mantle was the exact opposite uh, in the clubhouse, joking around and drinking and hang- hanging out. So totally different vibes did did Yogi care one way or the other what was going on around him? Did it like sometimes we're in an environment and our personality changes a little bit based on who we're with? Was, it, was Yogi basically a who he was and kind of didn't uh, he let other people react to him as opposed to him reacting to them? Well, I think you know overall, uh, I mean, DiMaggio was um, serious. Um, a serious, serious man, a serious player. Um, the Yankee clubhouse during Joe DiMaggio's time was always described as somber, even though they were winning World Series all the time. Um, you know, that Joe was just that kind of guy. And, and nobody said, nobody would cross Joe. Nobody would say anything bad about Joe. Nobody would do anything that would offend Joe. So the clubhouse for the time Joe DiMaggio was there, so for Yogi's career in 1947 to 1951, was quiet, respectful. And, uh, you know, if Joe left, it would loosen up a little bit. But while he was in the clubhouse, and he was usually one of the last, if not last, people to leave the clubhouse, it was just they would win, and you would think they would have lost. And uh, when he left... The, you know, the clubhouse took on much more of the persona of Mickey and Whitey. And Whitey Ford was just, you know, the most fun-loving guy um, going. I mean, he was, uh, you know, and the two, Mickey and him together, the clubhouse was just a much livelier place. And, and yeah, I think Yogi and everybody on the team enjoyed the, the post-game um, atmosphere a lot more when Joe wasn't there. Unfortunately, we're going to have to vacate the locker room right now as we're out of time. We've been having a great time with John Pessa talking Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Grab this book. We'll be back next week on Everything Old is New Again to continue talking with John Pessa, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask on Everything Old is New Again. In pinstripe tradition, the Yankees have a mission to get 